0: Welcome to Top Docs, I'm Mike Merrill. Today, my partner Ken Jacobson speaks with Jamila Wignot about a scene from her film, Ailey. The scene covers a time when Alvin Ailey was suffering acute mental health issues. It's an intricate scene and Jamila and Ken break it down, noting the decisions she and her team made to create this affecting and effective sequence. It combines images of Ailey's masterpiece, Revelations, with archival night footage of New York, and also uses sound as both mirror and counterpoint to these images. Jamila calls her and her team's work here, conducting and orchestrating. And as she explains how she and her team created the scene, you'll see why those terms are apt. If you like this conversation, you may enjoy Ken's longer interview with Jamila. We'll place the link for that in the show notes. And please do follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, Jamila and Ken break down a scene from Ailey.
1: So here's our anatomy of a scene with Jamila Wignott. We are gonna talk about a scene that happens near the end of Ailey. What we see is a montage of shots of the streets of New York. There's the whir of lights, there's people, cars, buildings. And the voice you hear is Alvin Ailey essentially narrating these images. Ambulance is taking me away. The whirling sound of sirens
0: my mother my hand, holding my hand, ripping through the city, ripping at seven o'clock in the morning through the noise of the city where everybody else had going to work. My mind confused and fraught at arriving finally at some place and not knowing where the hell I was. The mental institution, the mental institution that I had been moving toward for the last several months
1: that is the voice of Alvin Ailey describing how he was taken to a mental institution. Jamila, can you just talk about how you've got this audio tape and you don't, but you don't have any images to go with it, how you created the montage to go with this and just what your creative process was during this part of the sequence.
2: This part of the sequence is actually one of the earliest scenes that we cut because it was actually something that we cut when we were still doing fundraising and we were wanting to you know, explore this very, I think, unknown part of Ailey's story. So we have this incredibly revealing dialogue that he provides chronicling his own experience of extreme disorientation. He doesn't really know what's going on. And we first found this wonderful footage. All of this is footage, actually, that's Jonas Meekus footage of New York streets. So I think in that idea of us being able to tap into an ancestral memory of the Black experience for some of Ailey's works, we also, throughout the film, resource archive that sort of taps into, I would argue, an ancestral experience of the queer experience an ancestral experience of you know, New York. We very much were guided by this idea of point of view. We wanted to create a scene in which words are saying one thing and then the images are allowing us to sort of mirror and imagine the the experience of his disorientation in this moment. So very short shots, everything is a little bit frantic. The speeds sort of speed up and slow down. Time is erratic. And then the other wonderful thing about this scene was once we began working with our composer, And our sound designer, there was another wonderful layer of texture, which really came through, especially seeing it on the big screen. This texture of sound also being slightly off. Sounds are sometimes happening before you hear him mention a word or sometimes after. The sound is not literal either. You hear the sound of a fire truck, you know, a broom sweeping or, or shovel, you know, shoveling, corn blast that happens not when we see a shot of a fire truck, but when we see a plane overhead. And then sometimes sound is muted, and then other times there's just for no reason very sharp sounds. So you hear the sound of um, ice and it's very acute, and then everything is very muted. And then this kind of coursing, composing that we had where there's this kind of sense of a kind of current that's running. And so, really, this is a scene where. We have, I feel like, various instruments, and what you're trying to do is create a rhythm, because Alvin Ailey's storytelling in these audio cassettes has a specific rhythm. You have to find a piece of music that then adds another layer of rhythm. The editing has to have a specific kind of rhythm, and when you're working with archival material, that means you're then locked into... A rhythm that's baked into the actual archive itself. My editor and I kept saying there's a kind of symphony. <laughs> it's almost like an opera that you're a conductor and you're, and you're orchestrating all these different parts and all getting really at the essence. So there was even, I think at one point, more of Alvin Ailey talking in this scene and eventually... As the visual images start to supply one layer of emotional experiences, the sound design and scores supply another layer, you realize that some of the specific things he's saying can be taken out because they're almost like scaffolding and you can just get at almost a kind of like a poetic approach to language where he is just sort of saying the most meaningful things and then the rest is all being supported through visuals and and sound.
1: And then you add in a new element, as we'll hear in a moment. The sound effects kind of go away from the city noise. And then we see several shots from one of these incredible black and white versions of Revelations. And then we hear in voiceover Bill T. Jones. It's a pretty long clip. It starts as voiceover, and then where he says, I believe, you'll hear that first. And then midway through, cuts to Bill in his sit-down interview with you. And then for the last part of his interview, you cut back to Revelations. However, this time footage of what I would call the signature movement of Ailey dancing toward the camera is reversed, so he's moving away from the camera. So I'm gonna play this through Bill's entire soundbite. I believe that there is always something, one's gift, one's genius, separates one from his colleagues, his community. I believe that he had that demon, that demon that says that if I have gotten this far, it's because I have pulled one over on somebody. And that any day now, I'm going to be found out. I think it's kind of something like a self-loathing that comes with uh, not uh, feeling worthy, even though you've Proven it. if you look at Revelations, it's one of the great dancers of the 20th century. Who could love him? Or were they loving what he represented? His gift, his fame, what have you?
2: Who... Could love him.
1: I just wanted to let that music play through because it's just beautiful. Yeah. So yeah, take us through this section of the sequence if you can, Jamila.
2: So here in this section, we basically want to juxtapose Ailey's masterpiece against this kind of lowest moment in his life. And I should say straight off the bat, I had two extraordinary editors who worked with me on this scene, actually. Anna Galilia, the main editor of Ailey, and then my husband, Adam Kernitz, pitched in a little bit <laughs> and did some editing. So I want to give credit to editors because there's so much beauty in terms of pacing and rhythm and poetry in this that is absolutely an extension of their real gifts. But yes, we start with Revelations and actually we use in this scene the sort of highest quality version of this film, which is the Lamp Unto My Feet, 1962 filming of Revelations, but we actually chose to use this kind of deteriorated VHS copy. So there's sort of lines that come through it, because again, we're getting at this idea of something, as Mary Barnett says... (laughs) Alvin isn't well, something is not right here. And you start at a moment where you have this great part of Revelations because a theme of Revelations is community and then personal anguish that's in that dance. And so all the dancers are there together, collectively outstretched arms, reaching for something beyond their reach, right? And then the dancers separate and it's just Alvin and Ailey by himself down in a crouch in this expression of loneliness and isolation as we hear Biltie Jones began to kind of speculate. So that dance moment and that deteriorated archive really spoke to this moment. We come up on Bilty Jones as he continues his thoughts because it's lovely to see him on camera and connect with him in this moment in terms of what he's communicating. And then we come back to the solo which Ailey performs, which is the only recorded footage of him dancing alone. It is a Sinner Man in... Revelations, which is now danced by three men at this point in time. The company was so small that only <laughs> Mr. Ailey danced it. He is suffering from bipolar disorder. That's his diagnosis. He says earlier in this part of the film that part of it was the distance he had traveled, the sort of contrast between coming from where he came from and then dancing on the Champs-Élysées. And there is something he can't reconcile about that. He says that earlier in this part of the film. We wanted to show this kind of, again, disorientation and choosing to run the dance backward was just an intriguing way of experiencing him anew in this moment. And it's very interesting as you watch, especially in these sort of Lester Horton (laughs) technique backbends that he's doing when you slow the footage down and when you run it in reverse, you can really examine the total commitment he has in that moment to expressing whatever it is inside of him. I mean, his head looks like it actually hits the ground at one point it doesn't, but that's how low he's coming to the ground. And so there's a sense of him just opening all of himself, opening every vein and pouring out all that's in him in this dance moment, that when you ran it backwards, you actually saw something of this, sacrifice, I guess I would say that he's participating in that moment. It's a scene that, as I say, we cut very early on because it helped us arrive at the language for the film in many ways. And it helped us arrive at this kind of emotional connection and intensity that we hoped we would be able to carry through in all parts of the film.
1: And I just want to play about another 15 seconds of this to give the audience a sense of where we come out. They finally released me of the hospital. My mother came. She stayed with me for three weeks, seeing when I was all right, cooking, being lovely. That's Alvin talking about his mother coming to take care of him. And we see a a lovely still of his mother kind of above him and holding his head in her arms.
2: It's intriguing that His mother is there. I mean, I think she is the driving force for him in many ways, a very intense early childhood bonding with her. And then here in this crucial moment, she's the partner that he can turn to when he needs care, because again, he, he hasn't formed a kind of intimate relationship in this moment. And and there she is to support him in this way. There was something lovely and mournful as well about, you know, here he is in his full adulthood and he needs to be cared for because he needs somebody to come in and give him that love and care that when you watch the whole of the film, as I said, he is a person who has been giving and giving and giving sort of tireless, relentless emptying of self for this greater purpose. When we saw those photos and when we heard about the way he's you know, cooking and being motherly. We just thought, oh, here we are where we can reconnect with the two of them. And hopefully Alvin will set sail from that point on in a stronger place, which he does.
1: I love the way that there's a kind of a call and response where Bill T. Jones says the line, who could love him? And then we see his mother, that's kind of the answer. But really it's also, I think, a call to the audience. I think throughout this movie, there's the sense of how can we support our artists in the way that they deserve and need to be supported.
2: I think that's an extraordinary point. And who doesn't love having a person that they can place on a pedestal that they can always look up to? But I think there is actually something remarkably dehumanizing about the status of being an icon. There's a kind of notion that if you're made into a tiny gold statuette, you become as impenetrable as that gold statuette and you aren't. And I think particularly for this kind of artist who is endlessly plumbing the depths of himself, um, having that support and having that care and that ability to be vulnerable requires something more. He was surrounded by beautiful people and people who were dedicated to him, but As George Faison says earlier in the film, he needed somebody else that he could also turn to. And so, yes, we should be thinking about that very much and not requiring the artist of today to have that same experience.
1: Thank you, Jamila, for both giving Alvin Ailey his due, but also maybe taking him off that pedestal a bit so that we could get to know him. This is a masterful portrait. Congratulations to you. And thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you so much. And um, thank you for all of your thought and care in pulling this together. I really appreciate speaking with you.